Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Anand Chandrasekharan is a full-time angel and advisor with extensive exec experience at some of the biggest names in tech. Prior to being EVP at Five9, Anand worked at Facebook, Yahoo, and started several of his own companies. In this episode, Anand shares incredible frameworks for product leadership. You can read his thoughts in more detail at Anand C on Twitter, A-N-A-N-D-C on Twitter. Rishi Tripathi, group product lead at OnDeck, joined me in this episode as a guest co-host. We hope you enjoy. Anand, you've been at a bunch of amazing companies from Facebook to Yahoo to Five9 to starting your own company. Uh, you've had a lot of product leadership experience the past past couple decades. What does product leadership mean to you? Or, or what kind of product leader are, are you? Or what, what is your framework for even thinking about such a broad question? I, I would say, you know, it, it somewhat starts with defining what, you know, you want the product leader to be doing well in a company at any point in time. And then the question is, uh, are you at any point in time doing that job well, right? Like, what's your style uh, to do that? You know, in a, in a sense, I would say, other than the CEO, uh, the product leader is probably one of few other people who think holistically about the company, right? Uh, the big difference, obviously, is that the entire company uh, uh, likely reports to the CEO in some, some way, but nobody reports to the product manager. And so um, I think the big difference is uh, you're essentially getting most of what you're getting done um, through influence, right? Rather than uh, any kind of command and control or any kind of uh, direct reporting ability uh, to influence, right? So I think that's a that's a big part of you know successful product leaders is that they're able to form these merit driven arguments uh, for you know what they'd like to frame or you know how they'd like to get something done, uh, and it's really kind of convincing people uh, you know to not not to get too inception like, but you want to make people make it look like it was their idea uh, to do something and uh, kind of drive through influence rather than through command and control, right? So from that perspective, you know, you're uh, a great product leader is usually uh, doing a good job of kind of taste and uh, structure, prioritization, uh, bringing some coherence to the whole roadmap. Uh, if there's a bunch of priorities, uh, sort of picking, you know, the, the few things that uh, add up to, you know, form like a thematic uh, you know, okay, this makes sense kind of thing, right? Um, and then the one other thing I would say is uh, a lot of product people sometimes start out trying to win popularity contests. Um, and if you're doing product management really well, especially at the leadership level, you're not winning any popularity contests, right? Um, you're saying no most of the time. And when you're saying most of the time you aren't that popular, maybe maybe you can be respected because you say no in a very you know, thoughtful way. Uh, but, you know, done well, this prioritization job is is basically... Everyone's a little bit disappointed, but no one is surprised uh, about where the company is going. There's something really interesting there, and I'd love to hear more specifically about how this showed up at um, at Facebook, where you're thinking about a company that's so product led across the board. In your in the space that you're in, Facebook specifically around Messenger and Messenger platform. Platform is this word I think that gets used a lot, but I think a lot of people may not have as much insight or maybe I'm still learning uh, how what that means at different places and how to think about what it, what does it mean to build a platform? What are the trade-offs of those sorts of decisions? 
could you share a little bit about what that meant at Facebook? And then uh, as other people listening to this, maybe building their own companies and their own product teams, like what does it mean to, to make the choice to build a platform? Yeah. So, so a couple, couple of context things, right? What, so one, you know, from a platform uh, definition perspective, you're essentially giving people the building blocks that you might be using internally and they're building interesting, innovative things. And as Bill Gates famously sort of said, if a platform is successful, um, you know, the people building on top of the platform are making uh, as much, if not more money um, off of the platform than you are, right? So you're building the empowering things that others can use to sort of grow their, their businesses as much as, as, much as you are. Um, in the case of Facebook, th- think of it as uh, like Facebook is not a development platform, right? In the very traditional sense, like, you know, Android is or iPhone, iOS is. Um, it's more of a distribution platform. So essentially, the, the thought there was, uh, you know, the same things that Facebook is doing internally to gather distribution, could we give that to third parties as well so that they could acquire this one-to-one communication through Messenger uh, with their customers at scale, right? So let's take a few examples. Like Sephora uh, has all these relationships with young girls who, goes to the, who go to their store. Uh, can they have a digital one-to-one relationship with the same uh, users, uh, with the same consumers uh, through Messenger, right? And if they want to get an appointment at a store, can that happen digitally before they uh, uh, actually show up at a store, right? And so uh, I, I would say the, the Messenger... Uh, or, or any platform story, when it's really successful, you basically think it was such an inevitable idea once it's successful. Like today, you know, the idea of like purchasing a product on uh, Facebook or Instagram and getting all your customer care messages on Messenger is just like super normal. Uh, and, and that kind of inevitability, you know, in, in one annual letter, Jeff Bezos sort of says uh, the best recognition that an innovator can get is like people yawn at your innovation. Right. It's it's like so obvious that people just yawn when they think about it. And to to the people that created it, it's as, it's actually like a badge of honor is that you made it so obvious uh, that people don't think of it as innovative anymore. It's just like default. That's fascinating. One thing that I'd love adjacent to platform is sort of this concept of companies that are product led, right? When you were talking about what makes great product leaders, you talked about uh, the things that you're saying yes and no to should be so obvious because you've been communicating it the entire time. In kind of a similar way, uh, companies that are product led, you can think of a lot of the things that Facebook has now pioneered are standard in how we communicate, how we do things in the consumer social space. Facebook is sort of in my head, just this example of, of such a brilliantly led product-led company, uh, what are the threads that either indicate that a company is is trending towards being product-led or, or, or not, uh, especially through this sort of phase of growth that lots of startups go through? Um, how do you know if you're going to come out the other side successfully? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I actually think that, you know, it, it kind of depends on what space you're in, right? Like there are a lot of spaces where uh, there is a huge amount of offline uh, you know, uh, you know, product, your product touches the real world, right? Like, you know, you can take so many examples of that. Um, and you can't sort of, uh, wish away the real world part of your product, right? Uh, but that said, you can, uh, convert more of your business challenges into computer science problems, right? Um, and then every time you can convert a business challenge into a computer science problem, uh, PMs and engineers and designers can kick in, uh, to try to automate away that, uh, problem statement, right? Um, and, uh, usually, you know, what you want to have have is uh, something that ties together uh, the why, what, and the how in the product journey, right? Um, and uh, as as important uh, as choosing which problems to solve with product uh, is which problems to not solve with product so that, you know, you can sort of 
you know, take 80% of your resources and focus them on one or two most important problems that you're going to use technology uh, to solve for, for, for your users, right? I would actually say product-led uh, primarily means that, uh, at least in my mind, that people don't have an offline way to associate with your brand. It, the, the digital uh, uh, experience that they have is all they have to kind of evaluate uh, you or your brand, right? Um, like uh, a lot of times if I sort of you know use an iPhone, um, I have no idea how the org chart is that built the iPhone. You know, I just use the experience. Um, and there's one uh, kind of interesting law called Conway's law, which is, you know, a lot of times uh, people just ship their org chart um, and, you know, you can sometimes, uh, the, the joke that I would use is that if you go to the Yahoo homepage uh, back in the day, uh, you could tell how the org is structured, right? Uh, because there would be like little sections for like every team um, and they would want their little sandbox and, you know, they'd want their traffic to go from there. And what you want is ideally as, as you know, I, I really like how Apple calls it, you know, we bring the hardware software services together so you don't see where the, uh, the line blurs between one and the other. Um, and so I think product-led is largely that you don't have the offline experience, like a re- set of retail stores or uh, uh, some such thing. In some cases, you don't even have a customer care line. Uh, you just have the product, and the product is really your entire brand. You've been involved with companies at, at all stages. And, and I'm curious if you could sort of outline how founders should think about the different stages of product maturity and the different sort of resources uh, that people need, maybe going from the beginning, where maybe the CEO or the, one of the co-founders is leading product and then they scale and they need to hire their first PM. Maybe, maybe we could start there and then, and then go from there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the, at that stage, Eric, I mean, as you know really well, uh, you live or die because, you know, you got product market fit, right? Uh, and so pretty much the only thing you could do wrong in that stage is uh, do what I, I call playing operator, which is, you know, hire a lot of people, uh, raise a lot of funding and use all these uh, kind of uh, uh, artificial signals to say that you have product market fit because before your consumers or your business customers are actually uh, paying for your product or you know uh, spending time and the retention is growing and things like that. So there are you know some some fairly well documented metrics that indicate that you are trending towards product market fit. And then the other thing I would call out in that stage is uh, there are people who get impatient when they're a little bit close to product market fit and they. Uh, don't uh, differentiate the subtle uh, differences between weak product market fit and strong product market fit. So sometimes you might have solved a part of the problem, but you didn't hit the bullseye and solve the most important part of that problem, right? Um, So I would say however long it takes, like in my experience, like as an angel, I've seen marketplace companies uh, right from the beginning sometimes take three years where they are in like one city or two cities or three cities uh, to the point where like if I have a monthly call and can we go two years uh, later, three years later, sometimes I've had the, hey, like, don't don't you guys have like, you know, that big of an ambition uh, because you're only in like two cities, uh, but they're perfecting their marketplace playbook in a very, very small number of uh, cities. And they're even getting to, you know, contribution margin positive uh, and and, uh, milestones like that. Uh, in addition to just product market fit and retention and that part of the playbook. Uh, And then, you know, when they're able to raise their Series A or Series B, for instance, uh, sometimes even that round ends up being a large growth round because their playbook has been proven out and they can scale uh, pretty rapidly. So so I would say at that stage, uh, the the other thing I've seen in my experience is you want execution to be close to perfect in the pre-PMF stage. um, And you don't want people who are 
very uh, half-heartedly committed to the company and things like that for the following reason, right? You're, you're defining a hypothesis and you're, you're seeing if the hypothesis works in the real world. And if it works really strongly, then you have product market fit, right? Or you're trending towards product market fit. What you don't want is this weird situation where something didn't work as a hypothesis and you don't know if it was because of sloppy execution, because your team wasn't all in, or the hypothesis didn't work, right? Because um, you want to rapidly abandon a hypothesis and move to the next thing. And you don't want this like, you know, sinking feeling in your stomach if like the hypothesis was actually true, but you didn't execute it perfectly, right? So in that pre-PMF stage, one of the non-obvious things is that you want a small team of like really committed people uh, who are just like, you know, executing almost perfectly. And so I want to sort of extend this story out into the future a little bit. If we press fast forward, you've hired a few product people. Now uh, you have a little bit of an org, let's say maybe two to four people. And we can talk about hiring. That's a whole other topic we can dive into. But you now have, have a, a product org that's being built in this larger and increasingly complex organization, right? At that stage, how would you encourage both that product team and also founders and execs like, how do you figure out the signal and the noise and what are the signs of a, of a product team that's communicating effectively just in order to, to, to get stuff done and make sure that stakeholders are engaged, et cetera? Let's talk about this maybe at like the mid stage where you have a, a small but growing uh, product team. Yeah. So uh, actually, that's a that's a great segue from the product market fit uh, topic, which is if you have stayed super disciplined and you have strong product market fit, that actually, you know, really helps you transition well into the next phase because whether it's B2B or B2C, uh, let, let's take the B2B uh, case, for example. If all your customers have largely asked for the same set of features from you, as opposed to there are islands of customers who have asked for different sets of combinations of features, right? Um, it makes the product team's job a little easier because there's one set of priorities that all the customers are sort of clamoring for. Uh, and you have already exerted the discipline uh, that has led to the sequencing and the prioritization uh, becoming clear, right? And in the B2B case, you know, you've got salespeople who are bringing this probably to the to the customer base as the company grows, right? Initially, there was probably purely product-led growth or the founders were doing a lot of the sales, things like that. Now, as the product org has grown, you also have the sales org uh, growing uh, in, in B2B. And so what you want is uh, sort of one set of customers asking for one set of capabilities to solve one set of problems, right? Um, so if you've done the discipline during the strong PMF stage, then that really helps out, you know, uh, in the next stage. If you have weak PMF, that's that's where that manifests uh, uh, for you, is that in the next stage, you've got a bunch of confused and disconnected teams uh, where one set of sales teams is clamoring for one set of features and one other sales team is clamoring for a second set of features and the product management job becomes uh, a little bit kind of herding cats. Uh, and also you are disappointing your customers who may have paid you some revenue in the early stage uh, where you thought you had product market fit, right? Uh, the same actually holds true in the consumer uh, uh, realm as well. Uh, it's probably a little bit less dramatic because there aren't salespeople yelling at you all the time. Uh, consumers are just choosing to use your product less uh, because you're not developing the same set of features that uh, the initial cohort of customers who are sort of strong users, who, uh, as as uh, Paul Graham or others would say, uh, it's better to have a few people that love your product than you know a lot of people who like your product. And so I think the uh, you owe it to yourself to really stay in the strong PMF stage uh, because it'll really solve a lot of the kind of people you hire and and things like that later on. I would also say. Most of the communication, at least in my experience, uh, I've had the cadence of 
team strategy operations. So like most of my updates are, there's updates on the team side, there's updates on the strategy side, there's updates on the operation side. So in the team side, you know, you're largely talking about uh, who the new team members are who've joined, what their skill sets are, which companies they're coming from, what what problem set they're here to solve for, for us as a company. Uh, and also you're communicating what, if anything, has changed in terms of reassignment of engineers or assignment of engineers, period, to begin with, and so on. Um, on, the, on the strategy side, uh, that's where you're largely... Uh, you know, updating people on any changing priorities with respect to prioritization, uh, because if the strategy of the company has changed, uh, you don't want the product and engineering strategy to not reflect, you know, the broader changes in the in the company level, right? Uh, this is also where, uh, as you raise more capital, uh, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? So sometimes when you don't have a lot of capital, you have you have to force prioritize and sequence out. Uh, whereas <clears throat> sometimes you can raise capital to say look, uh, we're growing uh, a new product in the US and we don't have full proof that that works, but we're also expanding a product that we know works in one market uh, to 10 other markets, right? Um, and for that, you can raise capital. It's a pretty deterministic thing. Um, and, and actually, that's uh, a big distinction I've seen in product management skill sets as well. Uh, so you've got the people who do zero to one product, uh, you know, from a, from a uh, discipline-wise they usually come from engineering backgrounds or deep technical backgrounds or design backgrounds. They usually like to make things uh, constantly uh, and they have no patience for the optics or the politics or the uh, the herding cats and the program management and all of that stuff. Uh, and then you've got the one-to-end people who like the large teams, who like the weekly cadence, uh, who keep everybody in the loop. Um, and you know, you'd be naive as you grow to say that one, one skill set is important and the other is not, right? It's a, it's a balancing of those two. Uh, and largely, you want the zero to one people to be doing the newer capabilities and newer products that are unproven, but you're constantly iterating. Uh, and those people are very comfortable being in a windowless room for like six weeks, like just iterating on mocks and code and, and stuff like that are usually incredibly hands-on. And then you want the people who are uh, set up with revenue goals and scaling goals and things like that, who really are in some sense like finding ways for for the company to pay the bills uh, to do the innovative stuff, right? Um, so the two actually really coexist with each other. And a good product leadership is largely uh, like trying to see where the bets are in the in the scheme of things. Uh, and you, uh, if if done well, uh, you know some companies use a 70-20-10 uh, approach or you know uh, a, 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 any number of such approaches where you've got a constant number of ions in the fire. Uh, but you also don't have 70, 80% of the resources are doing unproven things, right? You have 70, 80% of resources uh, finding ways to pay the bills so that you're reducing your dependency on new capital and fundraising. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that overview. Let's talk a bit about the the personnel in terms of both on the early you know, uh, product team, what maybe what kind of risks you're comfortable taking or not comfortable taking when, or, or what to look for in those early hires. And then in terms of, you know, really bringing in more more seasoned, you know, gray hair, so to speak, or, or seasoned leadership. What what to look for in a in say a VP of product, and when you know you need to bring one in. Yeah, so so Eric, on on early stage, I would say one one sort of recurring general principle that works is to have generalists, much like many other departments, um, and and to have folks who 
come in with a deep understanding and appreciation of the problem statement and the value and the mission that uh, they're a part of uh, and really uh, be willing to take multiple approaches to solve the problem, particularly when you know there isn't product market fit yet. Um, one sort of common mistake I've seen is people who come with one set of expertise, uh, they have that approach to solve the problem and their, uh, their loyalty is more to the solution rather than to the problem. What you want is someone who's, who's willing to abandon one approach uh, to find other approaches to solve the problem. One thing I like that on uh, on deck does is uh, sort of before deploying a lot of engineers, you have a no code uh, approach sometimes to solve the problem, which is I think you know uh, a great example of uh, using the tools that are available at any point in time, as opposed to coming in with one approach to solve the problem and sometimes taking three months more, six months more to solve the same problem that could be solved in a week uh, by just taking a different approach. Right. So uh, in the early stage, I would say that's probably uh, a key operating principle is that uh, there's a lot of value to mission alignment rather than to expertise. I think at some point you're gonna realize, uh, you know, here are some here are some DNAs that are important to the company. Uh, so, for instance, uh, there are there are gonna be product development uh, cycles uh, which are governed by high regulation, where you don't want to be moving, you know, fast and breaking things, as they say. Uh, you want, you know, the, there to be compliance. You want there to be uh, sort of uh, the checks and balances. Uh, you want the process to be there uh, if you're storing credit card information or payment cycles or you know products for investors and so on. Uh, and so that part of the product development cycle is probably way better off run by someone who has a deep understanding intuitively of those kinds of things. And you can't, you know, it's hard to learn that on the job. Uh, sometimes, you know, the uh, the various, uh, especially globally, uh, sort of what, what regulatory uh, systems you need to be compliant with and so on. Uh, but over a period of time, I think you also get a sense of what the instincts are. And what you want is, in some sense, like who is who's, uh, the, the person in-house that has that instinct? Uh, that product instinct within the company, right? Uh, if you are doing a lot of people search, people-oriented products, uh, you probably want someone who's, you know, sort of built a social product from the ground up, uh, uh, for instance, social plus knowledge graph uh, type products. Um, so it's really a question of like having the instincts, whether the founder has it or the product leader has it or an individual tactical PM has it as the company grows. And continuing on the start of talent, there's uh, one, one thing just like with, companies and technologies, you think about like build versus buy. There's also the same thing with talent. Do you do homegrown talent? Do you sort of hire people junior, grow them over time? I know Google does the APM program. Yahoo also did theirs. Uh, Facebook does RPM. Uh, so one thing we've kind of been playing around with internally is like, should OnDeck do something, some generalist rotational program? So that's like one class, homegrown versus like hiring in senior talent. And then sort of adjacent to that, how do you know that a product manager is ready for more leadership? Uh, and, and what does that look like over time to promote or, or to have that homegrown talent grow over time? So, so Rishi, on uh, on the APM part, I can take that first. You know, I was actually at Yahoo and uh, worked with Marissa while she introduced the APM program that she had uh, uh, kind of co-created and led at Google. Uh, I think that's a great idea, actually, to pick unproven talent uh, and give them large problems. Uh, one thing I've found that really works with that program is uh, you know, folks who are coming in largely don't have the level of industry experience. Um, and while, you know, there are some obvious things that could go go wrong with that, uh, the big pro, the, the big positive is that uh, they just don't know what they don't know. Uh, and sometimes they just solve a problem that no one told them couldn't be solved, right? Um, so, you know, in terms of uh, counterintuitive approaches, 
uh, and just sort of uh, people, you know, work, just breaking through walls, uh, getting to the other side and so on. It's actually a great way to find and nurture unproven talent. Um, I also think that's a that's a great way to build, you know, product leadership within the company who start uh, young and, you know, take increasingly large sets of responsibilities and grow from there. Uh, I'm also a big fan in generally promoting from within, uh, uh, you know, l- largely because uh, it takes a little while for folks to understand both what's required to win in a space as well as the mission of a company and the approach to winning. Um, and so, uh, you know, folks who demonstrate that internally are in, in a really great place to grow uh, just within the company. So I'm a huge fan of that, particularly with Acqui hiring. I think it's great to have a uh, almost like a, a hit list of folks that would be fantastic to have in the company. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, th- there's always folks that it's, it's it's bad timing because they have another job or they have a startup or something like that. Uh, and if there's an opportunity to bring one of those people that's always been on your top sort of list of people to recruit uh, for a very long time uh, by actually, uh, you know, acquiring a company that they were part of, uh, then that that works re- probably the best in terms of an acquire strategy uh, or to bring a small group of people, particularly folks who've worked really closely together for a really long time. Uh, that often sort of minimizes the need to create chemistry between them because they've been already shipping products together for a long time, potentially. Yeah, that's fascinating. This concept of like the dream hires is, is one that we definitely buy into it on deck. Uh, we, we talk about, oh, I'd love to work with this person, that person. And sometimes you kind of, you, you hit the lottery and, and, you, and you are able to land like great talent. The second part of the question, I think is, is one that I'd love to hear more about around how do you know, given a specific junior to mid-level product person, what are the signs that that person is growing, that they're um, developing sort of the leadership muscle in order to make that investment in that talent worth it over the long run? And, and especially at scale, if you're able to systematize it in something like an APM program or even outside of product, just generally investing in talent. Two things, right? One is, uh, uh, you know, so so mo- mostly, uh, you know, I think of people's uh, delivery on their job through the lens of talent and motivation. You know, do they have the talent, you know, the basic uh, uh, skills to do this job? And the best uh, indication of this is that they are over delivering on their current job, right? Uh, I think there's a there's there's sort of a longstanding argument on potential versus results. Uh, and it's very hard to talk about potential in the absence of results, right? So uh, I think the best indication is that they are uh, doing really well against their current goals uh, and constantly demonstrating, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, ability to look around the corner uh, compared to their what their current job uh, sort of demands, right? Um, so talent and motivation is, is, is are, are sort of the obvious things to look for. Uh, but also, you know, sometimes uh, what ends up happening is that they end up doing so well on their current job that they actually kind of create the opportunity that leads to their next job, right? Um, So a friend of mine uh, that I know really well uh, was the first product manager on Android, right? And when Android started growing, uh, literally this person's job responsibilities just started growing uh, because they created the opportunity for themselves uh, for for their job to grow, right? And so when Android became a global product, uh, they ended up becoming global team. When Android started to have, you know, various uh, integrations into the rest of Google, uh, that became a big part of the product. When uh, there was a hardware plus software component that got added to the Android product ma- product leads uh, portfolio. Uh, and so uh, I think in a way, uh, what the most successful PMs I've seen are the ones that 
uh, kind of take that take their own destiny in their own hands and there's a little bit of luck involved in it but uh, they almost like kind of uh, manifest the product organization that creates their next job and their next job and the one after that and so on yeah there's uh gro- growth is everything i think in these sorts of roles and also in sort of creating the opportunities that are around the corner from the current one you talk about measuring roles and measuring people's growth through the lenses of uh, talent and of motivation. How at different stages of companies have you seen teams sort of measure their own output in aggregate, right? Like how do you measure product teams in a product led company where the only thing is the product? It's fairly clear. It's, is the product growing? Is everything going healthy? But maybe for companies that are either working towards that or where the goal may, the company goal may not be as clear. How do you measure product teams and, and evaluate them if maybe it's different at different stages, but curious to hear your thoughts? Yeah. So, uh, you know, probably the best book, uh, that, that talks about, you know, how to evaluate leaders and how to evaluate people who are, who are increasingly growing in their potential is high output management. You know, one of the things that is super interesting is as you become a leader, the right way to evaluate your success is actually not how well you're doing, but how well other people are doing under your leadership, right? Because you're responsible for the the circle of influence that you're directly involved in, as well as the circle of influence of all the people that kind of report into you, right? Like who are part of your organization. Uh, you know, one of the things that, for instance, sounds super tactical is that, like, I think some of the world, some of the most successful product execs and execs in general, uh, operating execs tend to be like super responsive, right? Why is that super important? Because uh, as your uh, scope and uh, team size expands, uh, you can often become the bottleneck in decision-making, right? And so the faster you can sort of unblock things, the faster you can sort of be a, be a human router, uh, the faster you can sort of come up with an opinion on you know, a couple of options uh, that directly involves you, the, the more you can you know, have other people move faster, right? So uh, I, I think the important thing is that uh, folks who are great individual contributors, uh, but not empowering, you know, other people to succeed and not creating a clear sense for, you know, what what the North Star metric is, uh, that they're part of the product or their pr- product, which is part of the portfolio, uh, is seen as winning, right? Uh, and I and I, we talked earlier about the zero to one versus one to n. Uh, managing those two styles of product managers, for example, is also significantly different. Uh, and also hiring those two instincts and putting them in the right part of the portfolio, uh, those kinds of things tend to be very important as well. Uh, in addition to hiring great talent in general, uh, that that usually ties with motivation as well. So uh, sometimes what happens is you have a person who did zero to one for a while, but then uh, becomes curious to do one to N. And so recognizing those changes in people's uh, uh, desire and uh, their own desire to do, go, do, go try something new uh, is also important uh, to retain people over the long term. Definitely. There's a lot there. I think, I think especially it, some of it hits, hits home, especially hard for, for on deck right now, because our team's growing rapidly. We're looking to hire, we're seeing if there's people who, who are going to transfer or change roles and how those roles might change over time. So really, yeah. really insightful to hear um, some of this background and, and your experiences here. Well, one thing, uh, w- w- one of the things that, again, is is kind of a common thing that you make this mistake when you're young and then you recognize it as you, you do it repeatedly, is when you know that something uh, something isn't working out, uh, whether it's a new hire or, you know, someone you moved into a new role, uh, etc. One of the things that folks do in a startup is uh, they just give it more time and then they just, just say, hey, you know, I don't have enough data. Uh, I'm going to give it a quarter more or a month more. I've found, at least in my experience, almost 99% of the time, um, I don't get any new data. Uh, and I've just delayed the decision by a month or a quarter. Um, so I think like sometimes uh, just shooting for this 
uh, what Keith Roboy calls 70% conviction on decision-making, right? Uh, especially when you need to make hard decisions. Uh, and uh, sometimes the delay that you uh, cause uh, in your organization by just waiting for 90% conviction, you know, especially when things aren't working out, uh, you're never going to get perfect information. Like most decisions in a startup, you got to make it with the information that you have. And so some of those hard decisions, you got to make it based on incomplete information. But the important thing is that you make those decisions and, and move on, especially the the unpopular ones like letting people go. Yeah, totally. And then you're, you're dropping a, a lot of knowledge bombs here and, and really insightful um frameworks. What, what do you think are, are non-obvious mistakes that you see founders uh, making, even though they, they might understand these frameworks intuitively or, or, or they might not? But what are, what are things to, to watch out for that you're, you're advising your founders as, as they're scaling their product organizations? Yeah, I, I think, Eric, you know, going back to our conversation, the, one of the most important things is that you're demonstrating a sense for what is important at that stage, um, you know, we talked about the most uh, egregious example of that, which is uh, folks pretending that they have product market fit before they do, kind of doing the things that you would do in the next stage, assuming you had product market fit when you don't, right? Um, so that's probably one of the most egregious ones. Um, once you do have product market fit, it's again this uh, stage-focused demonstration of who you bring in, what the product priorities are, uh, how you communicate that across the organization, how you encourage, you know, uh, constructive criticism and debate of the roadmap uh, and the priorities that have been picked up by the product leadership and the company. That's one area where there's a set of uh, mistakes just around uh, stage-focused decision-making. The other thing I would do is actually uh, just kind of, uh, as the company grows, uh, becoming too tactical and focusing on just the execution of the current roadmap and so on, uh, rather than, uh, you know, how the vision and the mission of the company can be unpacked bringing the broader ambition into the product team. Uh, So, you know, people can become very goal-focused and sometimes, you know, you can just too focused on the uh, trees for the forest, as they say, right? And so I think uh, great founders, I think, know when to uh, separate from that uh, and whether it's building new teams or increasing the ambition of the existing team, uh, try to manifest more of the vision, you know, within product and so on. And we talked about product-led companies. In those cases, it's important that the priorities be redefined, right? Uh, And what happened with Messenger is a great example. Uh, Messenger was purely used only between people, uh, uh, person and person, P2P messaging, as we called it. Uh, And with platform, uh, there was now P2B messaging, person to business, where it was now possible for, uh, the billion plus users to communicate with the 60, 70 million pages owned by businesses, right? Uh, so that's actually a huge example of like manifesting your broader vision. Uh, even though the existing uh, product is doing pretty well, right? You got over a billion users. So obviously things are going great, uh, but you're actually driving the broader ambition that you want manifested, you know, uh, by the product team. I really like that. You have experience sort of as a founder, in addition to all the operating roles that we've been talking about, what is it from each of the experiences and roles that you bring to the other, right? Like what are the parts of the founder journey that have helped you uh, to be a product leader uh, sort of in in other organizations? And what are the parts of the structure or or the execution at places like Facebook, Yahoo, et cetera, that then translate into sort of the founding experience in that journey? 
Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I would sort of caveat everything that I'm saying that by by sort of just saying uh, that uh, you know, uh, as an entrepreneur, I would probably give myself a five out of ten. I've met so many incredible entrepreneurs, including you know Eric, you, and you know so so many others that I've been lucky to be uh, part of the journey of. Uh, and you know, I would I would sort of say my views on uh, scaling product and being an operator are probably far more. Are relevant than my maybe I can tell you the the, the twenty five things not to do as a founder, uh, which would be you know more more valuable. Uh, but I would say you know uh, I think the 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 thing the thing that's helped me the most uh, as a founder when I think of my operating role uh, is to sort of look around the corner, right? One of the things that founders do is they constantly think about how the world can be better uh, because of what they're building, uh, and they. Uh, have one foot in the current universe and one foot in this future universe that they're building. And they, they you know, uh, when they're operating at the top of their game, they're able to figure out what needs to change in the present, but also what parts from the future they're going to bring into the present at the right time and in the right sequence, right? When you have been a founder before, uh, you're able to put that mindset on yourself without constantly being dependent on the founders of any company that you're a part of. Uh, and sort of ask yourself how you can look around the corner, how you can look at that mission, uh, that future manifestation of that mission, and what can you bring into the delivery today? What can you prioritize today? What What is adjacent to what you're already building? Uh, and I've seen this, you know, uh, done really well in a lot of B2B companies where it's uh, sort of in the industry, it's called TAM expansion, where there's a total addressable market that the company goes after today. Uh, but by building these constantly increasing uh, incremental things. You know, Atlassian is a great example of this, where they started out building a tactical product, but now they own so many large pieces of the developer uh, cycle, right? Uh, and it was constantly iterating, constantly building new capabilities, constantly building new products that are uh, adjacent to existing products, make sure they work really well together. Um, I think, you know, being a founder can really help you uh, wear that hat internally of, you know, how how would a founder think and how would they manifest that that future uh, and, and the trade-off of living in the present versus, you know, one, one uh, foot in the future. I think that mindset is probably the biggest thing that, uh, being a founder helps you bring as an operator. Totally. I want to segue into your investing practice and learn and frameworks and learnings there. But but before that, are there any core insights and in product that we uh, of yours that we haven't yet been able to to get into? You, you you've given a lot of frameworks already, but just wanted to make sure we. Yeah, I think uh, w- one thing I would say, Eric, is you know uh, there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot of product managers as well as founders who are. Uh, you know, going back and forth between B2C and B2B, going back even 10 years, uh, I think someone who started their career in B2C, uh, pretty much their, ended their career in B2C and, you know, same of B2B founders and B2B product managers. Uh, I think lots of folks are making the switch back and forth. Uh, and I think, you know, there's there's some really interesting uh, trends that are driving that. And uh, I think, you know, uh, more folks should lean in on their intuitions uh, in B2C to develop B2B products and vice versa, um, right? A lot of examples of, of this, right? Uh, Eric, you and I are both in Dive. Um, if you take Dive or Slack or Zoom, uh, the reason they're growing really fast uh, in a very short period of time is because they're bringing a lot of B2C instincts uh, to B2B products or or at least categories that were perceived as uh, business-to-business products uh, traditionally, right? Um, and, uh, you, you know, uh, while they're building for this business persona, uh, they're bringing great UI, they're building the kind of products that 
We would all build for our family and friends, especially if you can't go into the office and everything is remotely done. Uh, you know, it's remote first. Uh, and then the other side uh, too is uh, uh, is blurring quite a bit, right? If you take a lot of marketplace companies, consumer marketplace companies today, uh, a lot of the supply chain aspects, a lot of the seller focused product uh, look and feel like B2B products, right? So I think uh, product people, product leaders are bringing a lot of the insights from one into the other. And I think, you know, for the next 10 years or so, we'll see a lot more of that cross-pollination between um, B2B and B2C. And one of the things I think will happen more, you know, we're seeing that with Dive, for instance, is consumer-like network effects are showing up in a B2B product, right? So in the past, there, there aren't a lot of B2B products that have uh, uh, network effects, uh, but now there are easily, you know, a few you can name that are at scale, uh, which leverage net- network effects in B2B. Uh, Slack and, you know, Confluence and Jira are all great examples where network effects are being leveraged inside of businesses. Um, so that's, I think, a big part, you know, and I've been very lucky to straddle the B2C side with, you know, Facebook and Snapdeal and Yahoo and so on. Uh, and B2B with, you know, 5.9 and, you know, uh, being an investor in a, in a bunch of uh, angel uh, angel investing in a bunch of companies that have uh, broken out in B2B as well. Anand, you've uh, basically done my segue for me. So I appreciate you for that. I was going to, so kind of moving into the, the talking about the investing side of things, you've talked a lot about how sort of these trends are showing up across industries and, and how you, sort of your product mind helps you to make those decisions. You've been pretty prolific uh, with investing over the past couple of years, and, and you've been sort of sharing progress very publicly and transparently on Twitter. What is it about that experience, either do you, whether you think it makes you a, a better product leader or if it's just fun to support founders uh, sort of throughout this process? Like, why do you do it? And, and sort of what, what are you excited about sort of as you continue that practice? So two two reasons I think you know as I as I look back one I would say you know um, I was uh, uh, when I was at Stanford and did Aeroprice it was uh, less than a year after I had moved from uh, India to go to Stanford and uh, you know I was just very lucky uh, to get the help from people uh, in probably ways that I didn't even deserve right so the example that comes to mind. Um, uh, most often for me is a Stanford professor called Rajiv Motwani, uh, who's no longer with us, but was a very, very well-known uh, mentor investor uh, back in the day. Uh, he was an angel in Google, for instance, uh, and many other successful companies. So he would sort of spend a lot of time uh, helping technical founders figure out a lot of non-technical uh, topics like fundraising and hiring and building you know, sales and other uh, departments and so on. I remember chatting with him and going, why don't we officially make you an advisor and give you some equity to make it worth you spending all your time? You know, his response was, well, let's just focus on helping you now and we'll figure out the transaction later, right? And this is, of course, like, you know, uh, this idea is not new to uh, anyone in OnDeck, which is a spirit of generosity. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's a bit of a lost thing today uh, where everything be- has become so transactional, both on the founder side and the investor side. And this almost feels like a blast from the past where uh, to have the spirit of generosity and more than a transaction uh, and sometimes, you know, build a founder relationship over a 10, 20 year period uh, where you actually benefit monetarily, you know, uh, way late in the in the uh, long relationship that you have. Uh, and so for me, it's actually uh, doing to other founders what a lot of people did to me uh, and in no sp- small part influenced my, uh, you know, the, the, the big steps uh, that I went through in my career. I think the other piece is honestly, uh, it's very hard for you to be in the trenches on several different industries and being in cap tables 
and getting the investor updates, for instance, is a great way to actually uh, uh, stay in the trenches and keep your ear close to the ground. Uh, and so when I started investing, you know, it was actually to be a better operator. You know, I felt like it would help me hire people better. It would, you know, uh, force me to be hungrier because I would understand, you know, how founders with far less capital than I did in my operating role, uh, how they were hiring, how they were closing candidates, how they were sort of convincing someone from a larger company to join uh, and so on. And uh, that's uh, largely, you know, I've been like more than grateful uh, to get, you know, quite a bit of learning because of that. Uh, even sometimes when the startup fails, right? Obviously, when a bunch of them break out and succeed, the, that's sort of the icing on the cake. But, you know, even when the startup isn't successful, you you learn a lot. Uh, a lot. Uh, and, you know, wh- one thing that someone told me, which I uh, look back uh, often, is that, you know, you actually make a lot of money from your successes, but you make your reputation from your failures, right? So uh, when someone is failing, uh, there are very few investors, there are very few friends uh, who are actually with them. Uh, and I try to go out of my way to uh, make sure they're okay, their mental health is uh, uh, in a good place, uh, they're able to land uh, on their feet. Uh, and, you know, sort of, again, going back to building a 20-year relationship with these founders, try to make sure they uh, start their next chapter well. Totally. Playing the long game, for sure. And, we're, yeah, we're lucky to be the uh, beneficiaries of that. You know, something that's really interesting is that you've, you know, you obviously you've been at Facebook. You know, Facebook did, you know, the family of apps really well, of course, you know, rebranded to, to Meta re- recently. And and similarly, but obviously at a, at a very different scale, OnDeck itself has has different offerings to different customers, you know, founders and, and also tech employees and, and also investors. Obviously, that's a much, you know, bigger topic. But what is sort of some high-level framing of, of maybe what you learned from the Facebook experience or elsewhere that you think might apply to OnDeck that is trying to have a cohesive brand while also having different products that appeal to, to you know, all tech people ultimately, but slightly different customers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I, I think the, the, the one nuance I would say is that whenever you see a family of products, right, whether it's uh, uh, within Google slash Alphabet or Facebook slash Meta, uh, there's always a flywheel, right? Uh, uh, and, and one of the things that is probably um, uh, underestimated is how much uh, products like Messenger uh, and, and Instagram uh, benefit from the from the Facebook graph, right? Um, so uh, the reason Messenger has like so much value on day one when you download the app is because the entire Facebook graph is on your Messenger app, right? You don't have to uh, invite anyone. They're all right there and you can start messaging without knowing their phone number, right? I would say the only app that probably built a social network from scratch um, and didn't have a lot of dependency on Facebook uh, for the for the initial graph and the growth is WhatsApp, Right. Because WhatsApp leveraged the phone number graph as opposed to the, the Facebook graph, uh, the social graph. The, the big insight there is that you do want a central flywheel uh, that's feeding off uh, the new businesses, right? And that's there with the non-deck uh, in spades uh, because the, the talent that's joining the on-deck uh, uh, CBCs, uh, they you know, form the basis for ODX and uh, so much else that OnDeck is doing uh, now and in the future. Uh, and so I think the, the key is that, you know, you don't forget like what, what got you there in terms of the initial flywheel and you keep feeding uh, and keeping that flywheel, you know, extremely healthy, right? Uh, so that's, I think, the biggest insight there in terms of even though they're a family of apps, uh, they're all related by the core flywheel that gets the, the company growing uh, in terms of low-cost acquisition of uh, either supply or demand, right, within within the, the family. I would say other than that, 
you know, uh, the fundamentals are still the same. Like you still have the team strategy ops focus in each of the uh, each of the products. Um, I think one thing that I've seen is that when the company is growing really fast, right? Like uh, let's say you have one of these unfair advantages, and as a result, the second or third business that you're building is growing, you know, rapidly. Uh, and is scaling uh, really fast. Uh, the the way I think about uh, about that is that uh, it's a few things, right? One is it could either accelerate the current opportunity. Uh, in other words, like what you were looking to achieve in two or three years, you could achieve in six to twelve months. Uh, so it's an acceleration of the current opportunity. Uh, but what it could also do is present new opportunities way faster than you thought, right? Um, so a great example of this is the Facebook graph growth presenting the opportunity for people to communicate. Uh, through an app like Messenger, which didn't exist uh, when the original flywheel wasn't growing as fast, right? Um, so that's the second uh, thing that you know really fast growth presents, which is it raises new opportunities uh, that are uncovered because of the initial flywheel. Uh, and then the third is that your learning cycles and the insight cycles are accelerating as well. Uh, and if done right, then you're developing a, a kind of a monopoly on insights and monopoly on uh, learning that your competition or other folks going after the same consumer or business uh, is not able to get because they're not quite growing as fast, right? So those are, in some sense, very, very uh, leverageable modes that companies could build to grow faster with the current opportunity, to create new opportunities, and to learn and uh, have insights way quicker and way more leverageable um, than anyone else in the industry. I want to be mindful of time. I, th- I think that's a great note to uh, great note to, to, to wrap on, Anand. We're, we're very lucky to have your uh, your advice and, and investment, uh, be an investor at, at, at OnDeck. And then, of course, very lucky to have uh, co-invested in a number of, of great deals with you. Uh, Anand, thanks so much for, for your support and for uh, dropping a lot of insightful frameworks here today. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric, Rishi. Really, really glad to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.